last Sunday, we were celebrating the greatest demonstration of love in the amazing sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But of course, we're not just called to celebrate and enjoy this love. As followers of Jesus, we are called to love one another with the same unconditional, unlimited, unending love that God has poured into our lives. 1 John 3 and 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But what does that look like? What does it mean for us to love each other as Jesus loved us? How should it impact how we relate to each other? Well, near the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives us a helpful model of some of the practical ways that we can love each other. So we're going to look at that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, down to the end of the chapter uh, this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have, not, we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that they may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and dishonor, disorder. I'm afraid that when I come to you, my, come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Hopefully you'll remember in this letter that Paul was confronting the Corinthians' acceptance of the false teachers who had infiltrated this church. 
These guys had come into this church and had claimed to be more qualified, more able, more eloquent, more powerful than Paul. And so they were trying to lead this church away from the truth that Paul preached and towards their own version of the gospel. But Paul had challenged them by using the foolishness of boasting to show that he was not in the least inferior to these super apostles, in inverted commas. If any of the things that they boasted about really mattered in God's kingdom, well, Paul could match them. He could match them in terms of power, authority, knowledge, background, hard work, visions, even in suffering. And here in this passage, as we read, he also adds that he could match them also in miracles. Now I think we need to be careful when we start to think about these miraculous demonstrations of God's power. Talking about miracles, we can all fall into two extremes and we need to avoid those extremes. After all, Paul had challenged the false teachers on their wrong focus on the external and the spectacular. And Jesus also spoke out against a focus on those kinds of things. For example, he warned that miracles can be counterfeited. So he says in Matthew chapter 24, that false Christs and false false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles To deceive. These people have got nothing to do with God. They're not following God. They're not followers of Jesus. And yet they will be able to counterfeit great miracles and signs. So you can't always just go with what these these signs and say, well that, that proves that person is speaking the truth. And then when some of the Pharisees asked to see a miraculous sign, Jesus said this to them. He said, Matthew chapter 12, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus would not pander to the requests of the rebellious and the sceptical to see proof of who he was. He could have done it, he had the power to do it, but he wouldn't. Instead, he simply pointed them to his upcoming resurrection. So today we need to be careful. Careful not to demand signs and wonders and miracles from God. They are not supposed to be the focus of our Christian lives. So that's one extreme that we need to avoid. But at the same time, we must, we must avoid the other extreme of discounting them or disregarding them altogether. Because these signs and miracles and wonders were an integral part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus of Nazareth, Acts chapter 2 says, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. And God also endorsed the ministry of the apostles by miraculously working through them. 
Again, the book of Acts, chapter 5 this time, verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And the book of Acts also records that Paul did this as well. Things like healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, being set free from prison, shaking off a snake bite, and of course the greatest of all miracles which is of leading people to faith in Christ and seeing churches planted. And Paul also did this in Corinth. We read in verse 12, here in our chapter, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. In love, Paul was willing to respond to the needs of the people of that city In ministry, in miracles, in signs, and in wonders. That was an important aspect of his ministry. Now, of course, none of us here are apostles in that sense. None of us have been personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ as eyewitnesses of his resurrection and laying the foundation of his church. And so the signs and the wonders and the miracles that characterized the apostolic ministry in the early church will not be seen in our lives in the same way. That's what Paul is saying. Because those signs, wonders, miracles were done among the Corinthians because Paul was an apostle. And they characterized him as an apostle. They set him apart from the other Christians. Him and also Peter and James and and, on all the other apostles. But we too are called to love people by allowing God to work in power through us. We're not apostles, we won't see it in exactly the same way, but we are called to let God work through us in power to express love to people around us. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. The Holy Spirit has given to each one of us, at least, who have trusted in Jesus, at least one spiritual gift. Peter kind of lumps them in two different categories here. It could be a speaking gift, like preaching, or teaching, or encouraging, or or wisdom, or prophecy, or a whole load of other gifts. The Bible doesn't give a comprehensive list of all of the, the spiritual gifts. Or it could be of the other category, a serving gift. Like leadership, or showing mercy, or giving money, or miracles, or healing, or all the other serving gifts. But whatever gift that God has given to us, whether it's more of a speaking gift, or more of a serving gift, they have been given to us, so that we can bless other people. Not given to us so that we can boost our our, our self-esteem or that we can create a position for ourselves or that people would look at us and say, wow, isn't he amazing? 
But they've been given to us so that we can bless others. And so the love that God has poured out into our hearts through faith in Christ should motivate us and and equip us and empower us to discover and develop and use our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others and the building of God's kingdom. So if we say, I'm not interested in spiritual gifts, I'm not interested in the gift that God has given me, and I don't want to use it, that's not a loving thing to do in God's eyes. Because God has given us that gift to bless others, to express his love to others. So we we love other people by using the gift that God has given us to minister to them. But that's not all. The other side of that is that that love that God has poured into our hearts should not just motivate us to use our gift, it should also motivate us to encourage others to do the same. That's what the church in Corinth had failed to do with Paul. See in verse 11, Paul said, I ought to have been commended by you. This church in Corinth should have been among Paul's greatest, strongest supporters. They'd been so blessed by Paul's ministry that in love for others, they should have been eager for Paul to use his gift as widely as possible. They should have been telling everybody, look, you need to listen to Paul because he has blessed us so much that he could also encourage you and teach you and help you to, to get to know God more. That was Paul's attitude to others. For example, to Timothy. He said this in in 2 Timothy chapter 1. To to Timothy, Far into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. Far into flame. Use it. Develop it. Let it just, just burst out. And minister to people as much as you can through the gift that God has given you. And in his letters, he frequently commended other people for their service. Encouraging them. And also encouraging their churches to support them in their, in their use of their gift. For example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, he said this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincere. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to give her any help she may need from you. For she's been a great help to many people, including me. This woman Phoebe, this Christian lady Phoebe, had been such a a great blessing to Paul and to others that he was encouraging the Christians in Rome to say, look, get behind her, support her, encourage her, to enable her to do more and more great work for God. It's an aspect of love. So this is the the first practical way to love others. Use our gift to bless others and to build up his king and God's kingdom and encourage others to do the same. Secondly, we can love others through a handling of money. Now, if you've been with us as we've been working through Second Corinthians, you know that Paul talks a lot about money in this letter. But again, he felt the need to defend his refusal to accept money from this church. He says in verse 16, I have not been a burden to you. 
Paul didn't go to Corinth expecting them to pay him. Instead, he supported himself through the work of his own hands and also through the gifts from other Christians in other places. And Titus and the others that he had sent to them had also acted in the same way. They were not going there expecting to get money from this church. Now, as we've seen through this letter, there have been many reasons for this. But a key reason is just because he loved this church as their spiritual father. So he says in verse 14, he says, Children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. All of us who are parents would have a real chuckle to ourselves, because we know that's true, don't we? As parents, we provide for our kids, especially when they're young. And we don't expect them to do that for us. I hope not, anyway. Don't send off our two-year-old out to to work for us and earn some money uh, and expect them to pay. We know that that's our job. Why? Well, because it's simply an expression of our unconditional love for them. As a parent, we provide for our kids as much as we can. We try and look after them. We provide what they need because we love them. And we don't expect them to give us something back in return. And it was the same for Paul. As their spiritual father, the one who introduced them to Christ, he loved them unconditionally. And so despite all of the heartache that they'd caused him, he could say, what I want is not your possessions, but you. Paul wasn't interested in taking what he could get from them. Instead, all he wanted was their love, their friendship, their partnership. And that's what real love does. It values people over possessions, relationships over revenue, fellowship over finances. So it refuses to see people in terms of what they can give me. It refuses to exploit. It refuses to take advantage. Instead, real love does the opposite. It looks for opportunities to give. Paul wasn't interested in taking all he could get from the Corinthians. Instead, he was interested in giving them all he could give. He says in verse 15, I will will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. He was willing to spend his money and his time and his energy and his health, even his own life, if it would benefit these believers. That was what love does, did in Paul's life. And that's because this is what Jesus' love does. He is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who gave everything for me. And so if we've been filled with this love. Then in all our relationships. Then we will not try to take all we can get from people. Instead we will be seeking to give all we can give. But thirdly we'll only be willing to do that. 
if we're willing to put other people ahead of us. The Corinthians, they hadn't been doing this at all. Paul was afraid that when he visited them next, things would not be good at all. He says in verse 20, I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. Great church to go and visit, eh? The church was struggling to relate to each other in a loving way. The church was in a mess. There were arguments and conflict. There was envy and resentment as they passionately pushed their own agendas. People were losing their tempers. People were taking sides, developing a a them and us mentality. They were using words to speak badly against other people. They were passing on damaging rumours about them. They were proud and conceited, thinking far too much of themselves. And as a result of this, confusion and disturbances were just commonplace. It's just one big, huge mess. Paul doesn't say what the reason for this is here in this passage. Maybe these are the kind of things that was being encouraged by the false apostles. Because after all, they were using these kind of strategies against Paul. But also this had been a problem at the heart of this church for many years. Even in his first letter to this church, Paul wrote, Since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Their basic problem was a lack of genuine love for each other. They hadn't let God's love flow down through them into their relationships with each other. Because if they had, then these things wouldn't have been there or they would have been sorted. They would have been dealt with. As Paul wrote in his first letter to them in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrongs. God's love means we have a completely different attitude to other people. And that's what I think Paul has illustrated throughout this letter. He asked them in verse 19, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? All through this letter, as well, if you've been with us, you'll have seen that Paul was defending his decisions, or his actions, his apostleship, his ministry, in their church, and also his message. But Paul wasn't doing it for his own benefit. There was a, a deeper, a loving reason for this. He says he'd been doing this because everything we do is for your strengthening. Paul wasn't really defending himself in all of this letter. He was defending them. He wasn't seeking revenge for all the things that they'd said about him. He was seeking their restoration. 
He wasn't trying to strengthen his position. He was trying to strengthen their relationship with Christ. So he wasn't really fighting for himself. He was fighting for them. And their walk with God. That's what it means to love other people. Not fighting for ourselves, but fighting for others. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're called to do what we can to fight for others, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them to move forward with God. That's the way of love, isn't it? That's the way of Christ, who for our salvation laid aside his rights and privileges and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death at the cross. And finally, one of the important ways that we fight for others is through dealing with their problems. I think sometimes we can have the the idea that the, the loving thing to do means that we should always avoid those sensitive or those upsetting issues. Don't say anything that would upset anybody. Don't, don't mention any kind of delicate issues with them. But Paul didn't believe that at all. Because he didn't only express his fear that they were fighting with each other, he also expressed the fear that some of them were still living in impurity and sexual sin and debauchery. That they were still involved in immoral sexual relationships and impure thoughts and words and deeds and open, shameless and brazen displays of those evils in their life. And that really upset him. It grieved his heart to think that some of his brothers and sisters in Christ were still living in that way. He didn't enjoy thinking about it. He certainly didn't enjoy talking about it. But he wasn't going to avoid it either. He wasn't going to turn a blind eye to it. So he was going to speak about it. He was going to raise those issues, but not to condemn them. Not to put them down, not just to make them feel bad. And certainly not just to push them away because of their mess, the mess of their lives. His concern was that they hadn't yet repented. Because he knew that they used to live like this. But Jesus had saved them from that way of life. In his first letter, this is what he said, and this is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Through the cross, Jesus had paid for all their sins once and for all. They'd been declared righteous in God's sight. They'd been washed clean of their moral filth. They'd been set apart from this evil world and set apart for their relationship with God. So now, They should no longer live the way that they used to live. Instead, he challenged them in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought at a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your body. So when Paul raised this issue in his letter, he wasn't trying to put them down. He wasn't trying to make them feel bad. He wasn't trying to push them away. He wasn't trying to say, well, you're not a Christian. He said he was calling them to repentance. And that's what love does. It doesn't point the finger of blame. It doesn't ridicule or reject or condemn. But it does care for all of those who've fallen to sin. And it should motivate us to come alongside people, to help them to confront their issues, to repent of their sin, and be restored to walking with Christ. This is walking in the footsteps of Christ, who said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So four practical ways that we can love one another as Christ has loved us. First of all, use our gifts to bless others and to build up the church and encourage others to do the same. Number two, don't take all we can get from other people, but instead give all that we can give to them. Number three, don't fight for ourselves in pride. Instead, fight for others in humility. And number four, don't avoid those sensitive issues. Instead, be willing to call sinners to repentance.